0: Hi
1: there, I'm Catherine Clark. And I'm Jennifer Stewart, and welcome to The Honest Talk.
0: We're having real, unscripted conversations with women leaders across Canada.
1: We want to dig past the surface and find out what makes them tick, what's driven their passion, and uncover stories about their journey that may surprise and inspire. We're tossing aside the usual talking points, so let's get right to it. Bernita Felician spent more than a decade representing Canada as an elite track and field athlete hurtling her way into the hearts of people across the country and around the world as a two-time Olympian, a world champion and a 10-time Canadian champion. Though
0: she is now retired from competitive sport, Perdita has definitely not slowed down. She is the host of a new TV series called All Round Champion. She's a freelance sports broadcaster and podcaster who's covered several Olympic games with the CBC. She's written a memoir, which will be coming out soon. And she shares her remarkable story as a motivational speaker. We are absolutely thrilled to have Perdita Felician with us today on The Honest Talk. Welcome to the podcast, Perdita.
2: Ooh, that, that introduction is smoking hot. I love it. <laughs> I love
0: it. Thank you. Hi. Well, and it's all yours. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool.
2: No, thanks.
0: And you know what? Um, Canadians really do know you as the incredible athlete that that we were just describing in the intro, but um, you know there's so much more to the life that you've lived so far and they may not be aware just as as frankly Jen and I weren't that you faced a lot of hurdles in your childhood before becoming this incredible athlete you actually grew up in poverty you you spent some time even living in a women's shelter with your mom and siblings. And we thought it would be really important to our listeners and to us to start there with you painting a picture of your childhood because it makes what you've achieved so far all that much more remarkable.
2: Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, I spent more than 10 years representing Canada around the world and being this athlete. And I never really discussed my childhood um simply because there were a lot of things about it i didn't understand frankly there's a sense of shame about certain aspects of my childhood but in my memoir my mother's daughter a lot of it is you know fully out on display because i knew i needed a sense of closure and really to make sense of my young life so my mother immigrated to canada from saint lucia she was a teen mother she met this rich couple on the beach while she was a teen mom They are from Oshawa, Ontario. This is in the seventies. And she babysat for them on their vacation. And, you know, just to speed up the details, they basically loved her so much. And she took such great care of their three month old when she was 17, that they're like, wait, we want to bring you to Canada one day. And my mother has never left the Island. Her family had never left, you know, St. Lucia. And two years later, she makes it to Canada. She leaves her two young children behind. I'm not born yet. I'm not one of them. So when she comes to Canada, She has me. I'm not planned. I'm an accident. And so she has to decide what is she going to do, right? And so my mother decides to keep me. And I I go back and really detail how that came about. A lot of it I didn't even really know. And so when she decides to keep me, that really started a very difficult and haphazard existence for the two of us. So she left her other two children in St. Lucia. And she's trying to make a way in Canada, but she has no documentation. She's a nanny. And she essentially doesn't really have any good foothold. So yes, we go from place to place. We bounce from job to job. She gets fired. She gets put out. She's in an abusive relationship with the man who eventually will raise me as his child. And it really, for me, you know, even when I hear the word poverty, you know, I'm 39 years old and it still kind of pricks my heart because I never considered that we were impoverished. but. What you know is all you know, right? And it's only now with the lens of being, you know, a mature woman myself and all these years back and can say, no, that was poverty. We didn't have, you know, two pennies to rub together. And so
1: essentially my life was very displaced for at least the first 10 years. So for a lot of people that experience or experiences would leave lasting scars, but you've obviously turned it around and you have a perspective on it. And, you know, I would assume that it's made you who you are today. How do you digest your childhood and apply those experiences to your adult life and to raising your own daughter?
2: Yeah, good. Really, really good question. Okay, so I'm only 15 months in. I know the two of you are, you know, a little bit more seasoned mothering than I am. So, you know, in the last year, I would say I reflected upon my childhood a lot more. And honestly, there are things that I had to endure, you know, living in a woman's shelter. And, you know, seeing my mother kicked out in the middle of the night and having no place to go. And there are things that as a new mother, I could not imagine my daughter, Nova, witnessing And seeing and having imprinted on her existence, I want to do everything that I can so that my child has a very different childhood than I did. So, when she, you know, I remember opening up the fridge at times and, you know, we're hungry, but there's not really tons of food in the fridge. But then, you know, you're still hungry 10 minutes later. So, you go back and open the fridge again, thinking, okay, maybe some magical food will, (laughs) right? Like, no, still empty. So, it's like, I never want my daughter to go through that. And I think that's why I work so hard and fight so hard for her so that she doesn't have to go through anything
1: like that. When did you learn that or figure out that you had this capability to use athletics to kind of drive your life in a a certain direction?
2: Oh my goodness, Jen, by chance, by chance, because my, um, my mother never had, you know, a sports experience really like growing up in St. Lucia, there was not organized sport. So I remember being in about grade three and I don't know if any of you remember Canada fitness, but it was, oh,
0: I did so badly. At the <laughs> so glad threatened. you didn't.
2: <laughs> okay. That, that lays a great <laughs> foundation for this story now. So essentially, yes, yeah, the standardized fitness tests all around the country, you know, kids all in elementary school do it. And so um we did in grade three uh in gym class. And so after you do all the different tests, you know, the sprints, the eight hundred meters, the long jump, the you know, all these kinds of tests, they send back your results and then it comes back. And so you're scaled, you're you're um you're measured on the scale. So the the lowest you can get is a participation pin, which is basically got that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for trying. Thank you for coming out. Then it goes bronze, then silver, then gold. But then there's another level above that, which is excellence, which means you're off the chart. And so on this day uh, in elementary school, Mrs. Arthur's the gym teacher gives everybody their certificates and their badges or their participation pins. And then she stops. And she says, um, we're all sitting in our little shuttles, and uh, she's like, but you know, grade threes or grade fours, I think I was probably in grade three, she's like, I have one special announcement to make. There's one person in our entire class who was the only person to reach the excellence level. Nobody else has done it. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, who is this special person? Oh my goodness. Like she made this moment so set apart. Not realizing that I'm the only one that doesn't have anything. And she says, Perdita, it's you. Come on up. And I'm not lying. The whole entire room, probably like 15, 20 of us in this gymnasium, like, erupt, Like, we're at the Oscars or something like that. I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, you're amazing!" Uh-huh. And that was really my first moment of being recognized and celebrated. I had no idea I was good athletically. I had no idea it was a thing. And truthfully, that walk to Mrs. Arthur's, I felt like I was going to burst into confetti. And I remember that moment till this day. And so to answer your question, really, I didn't know anything about sports. And even when I made the track team, because Mrs. Arthur was like, you are going out for the track team next year. She made me go out for it next year and sign up. And when I made the team, I ran home to my mother a year later and she was vacuuming the stairs. And I burst into our little townhouse in Pickering, Ontario. And I, was like, and I waved uh, the permission slip. I was like, mom, mom, I made it for the track team. And my mom had this look in her eyes like, um, I have no idea what this little girl is talking about, but yay! Right? Did you stay
1: in touch with Mrs. Arthurs? Yes,
2: yes, yes, absolutely. For sure. Yep. She was married to the mayor, Mr. Wayne Arthurs of Pickering. So she was a big deal at our school. Yeah. And so she really
1: started me on my path. That's really cool.
0: Where did you go from there, Perdita? Like you started in on a team and then did you know right away this was what you wanted? No. And here's the thing. I had no idea about organized sport. I didn't even know the
2: Olympics were a thing. I didn't even know that, you know, running track and field or being athletic could even open major doors for you. I simply did it all throughout elementary school. And I was, I was unbeatable to tell you the truth. I was really, really good. And uh, in grade eight, I go to the, um, the biggest race of the, of the school year. And it's all the schools in our district. Uh, so in Durham, Durham, region. And I got beat at that race and it was so devastating to me because from grade four to grade eight, I had built up a reputation. I was called the bullet of never being beat, but I'd gotten beat that year from a girl who just moved to our district, you know, the previous summer. So I'd never faced her before. And so I quit track in grade eight, going into grade nine. I, the, the, the devastation of embarrassment of that loss, I quit. And I kid you not, regularly for two years, grade nine and grade 10. My mother would, she calls it encouraging, but it was literally nagging. Perdita, uh-huh. Perdita, you have to, you you know, God gave you this gift. You have to do it, my child. Please, 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 just just see what you can do. And I was in grade 10, only to appease my mother. Not for me, not because I had any aspirations of anything. I went out for the track team. And there began, on the high school level, my elite, I guess, entry and introduction to sport. And I think what really fed me in high school was just yes I was talented but you know if you know anything about athletes talent can only take you so far I had a drive I had a motivation that I never wanted to get beat and that really fueled me and even the embarrassment of losing you know Mm -hmm. two years earlier that sting was no longer as um as venomous as strong and so it allowed me to kind of explore more and then I got a scholarship offer at the end of university and you know I accepted
1: it and I went to Illinois for track I think it's really interesting that you stop for two years, though, because when you look at I'm a mother of a daughter, as is Catherine, as are you. And, you know, my fear for my daughter is that she doesn't do something because she loses the confidence or she doesn't want to appear that she doesn't know what she's doing or she's not the best in it. How do we talk to our daughters? so that they don't stop what they love, whether that's athletics or drama or academics. You know, what what lesson did you learn from that experience that hopefully we can apply uh, to how we parent? Or is it just something that each kid has to overcome themselves?
2: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's interesting because, you know, one of my passions is kids in sport, youth in sport, and especially girls in sport. And, you know, the Women's Sport Foundation uh, released a study this summer, where 62% of girls, by the time they get to their teens, no longer participate in sport, and one in three girls drop out. I think one important thing for mothers, whether or not their children go on to be like elite athletes or get scholarships, it's not even really about that. It's one, encouraging them to try a lot of things early, and then you see what sticks. And so hopefully what they really like doing and what they're good at, you know, there's an intersection of those two things. And your job, I feel as the parent, is not nag, right? But yeah, Mm -hmm. no nag, is really to encourage your child to keep it up and not stop just because they failed or fallen short. And I think the other thing too is... Allowing them to feel all their emotions, right? If they're frustrated, if they're angry, if they're discouraged and not like having this attitude of like, oh, suck it up, be tough, get over it and being hard on them or, you know, leaving the field of player or whatever the sports state is, And like the entire drive is you not dumping really, but like having to like, detail what happened or what went wrong. You really want to be a soft place to fall and not really this critical space. Their friends might be like that. Um, you know, Their teammates, their coaches are there for that. You really need to be the soft place to fall. As much as I, f- I was nagged by my mother to go back, I never felt pressure to have to become something prolific or profound. It was really you need to see what you can do. You need to take this as far as you can take it, whether it's winning, you know, a high school track meet or maybe it's the Olympics, which she knew nothing about, but really it's getting your child to go as far as they can go without putting so much pressure on them. Oh God, that was long. That was long. That was <laughs> well,
0: no, and, you know, I think we'd, we'd love to build on that because it's impossible to have any kind of career, any kind of life without having highs and lows. And you have had the highest of highs during your competitive career. And you've also had some of the lowest of lows. You, you had injuries. You had an incredible training schedule. You had a uh, stumble in the finals of the, uh, the 2004 Summer Olympics. But your mom, again, said something to you very meaningful right after that Olympic moment. What was it that she said to you and, and how did it help you keep going?
2: Yeah, my goodness. I remember, you know, Athens was devastating. And that's the thing, like you train for something for so long, you're poised, you believe you can get it, and then you don't, right? How many of us have faced that in life, in business, in love, in our, you know, personal and professional life? Everyone. So that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing. Um, and so, yeah, after I'd fallen at the Olympics, you know, I hadn't lost in leading up to the Olympics. I was the favorite. I was the reigning world champion. I was the Canadian record holder. I mean, you name it. You know, I was wearing these like chrome spikes that were signature made from Nike, my sponsor. And I at the Olympic Games. And I remember being in the belly of the Greek stadium in Athens in 2004 and just being a mess. And I was kind of in a fog like you would be, just completely shocking and numb. And um, they handed me this 4 right? So cell phones weren't, you know, all over the place like they are now. But they handed me this kind of thick satellite phone, right? It's like a brick. And someone called my mother. And she's, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away in Pickering, Ontario, and I'm in Athens, Greece. And the first thing she said, one of the first things she said was, you are the gold. You are the gold. And thinking about that now, I just want to cry because that moment going back there, I'll always be, you know, this young girl who's wanting to prove to her mother that she had done right by all her children. And, you know, for me, her saying that, it didn't take away the pain, right? It dulled it though. And it was almost like someone opening up a window where you had been choking on smoke and you get a little bit of cool, fresh air where you can kind of (gasps) breathe again. Right, so you can maybe take another breath and take another step. That really was what that moment was for me. For her, it wasn't this tangible symbol. Would she have loved it? Would we have all loved it? Absolutely. But for her, was really it was really no. This moment, it maybe to other people is failure, is a complete meltdown. Right, Mm -hmm. but for her, it was get up, my child. Get up, my child. You and I together have faced higher hurdles. We yeah. have had to climb them. We have had to go under them. We've had to go around them. So this particular hurdle is just another hurdle. And we have our history to show us, you know, which I detail in my book, to show us that you can get over this one. And so for me as a mother, that's what I hope Nova gets from my experience at the Olympics, is that she comes from a long lineage of women who are mm-hmm. like stick jumpers who have had to get over really big things.
1: When did you know in your career it was time to transition from professional sports?
2: Oh, God, when I couldn't deal anymore. Like, (laughs) I I hate showing up at the track. This is too much. Around 2011, 2012, it started to be a slog. It started to be harder. I had to, like, churn those flames a little bit more, whereas I would just show up and I'm ready to eat other women who hurdled for breakfast. And suddenly I'm like, mm, uh, mm, I don't know. And so the minute that happened, you really lose your armor. You really, really lose your ability to be fierce and to really conquer the injuries, conquer the doubts, conquer any little setbacks that come your way. And having to get through those things takes more emotional and mental bandwidth. And I was simply falling short. I was simply running out of gasoline. And so for me, when I saw that happening, I said, aha, this is the end, girl. Like, you can't run. And I was really young. I was 32 years old. That's really young. As a hurdler, I could have went, you know, till 38, 37, Wow. ideally. Yeah. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm out. I've done enough. Thank you very much. Here are your spikes back. I'm mm-hmm. going to go try another adventure and try a different
0: course. You're in a period of transition. You want to try something new. But what is that? What can you be good at when you've literally spent your entire life up to that point focused on one very specific thing? How did you choose a path forward?
2: What happens as an elite athlete is once you decide to transition, you have to understand that there's now going to be quiet, meaning the person that's introduced to a stadium full of 80,000 people and people are roaring and chanting and screaming and holding Canadian flags in your honor. Well, guess what? That's going to stop, girlfriend. And so what I did was I got myself ready. And athletes don't always get themselves ready, right? So when you ask the question of, how do you go from doing something really great for a long time to going to something next? I think I had to admit to myself, look girl, this high, this extreme high, there's not gonna be a lot of things that are gonna be like that. Walking to Olympic Stadium and your body feels like you are, like you could shock anything you touch. There's that much electricity in your being and in the air, right? And so for me, What happened was in 08, I was injured. I was supposed to go to the Olympics in 08 in Beijing, and I was injured. And CBC called me and said, hey, you're injured, but would you like to come over and broadcast for funsies? And you know, I licked my wounds and I went to Beijing. And when I got there and I was broadcasting, knew nothing about broadcasting, by the way, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I loved the thrill. I loved the excitement. I loved talking, as you can see. And so when I left after 10 days, I said in the back of my mind, now this is 08, and I said in the back of my mind, whenever I retire, I'm going to
1: do this. I'm going to pursue this. One of the big conversations we're having now as a society and and globally is on race. And how do we create a society that's diverse and where there's equality? And as a Black athlete, did you experience racism? And what was that like for you?
2: So I remember going to get my passport. This is while I was an athlete. Going to get my passport renewed in Toronto. And, you know, I'm a person, I travel around the world, I race in Greece, I race in China, I race in the US, I race in Canada, you know, I'm in 20 different countries in a year. And that passport that I have is going to be pretty worn over a five year span, right? You could imagine, you know, the stamps and the people who have to touch it and photocopy it. And so I go to renew my passport. And the woman who is, you know, behind the kiosk is a white woman. And when she sees my passport she was so disgusted by the state it was in, she didn't even touch it. She didn't want to touch it. Uh And when she has to touch it, you know, it's almost like she's scornful of it. And she's now admonishing me about what it means to be Canadian and the privilege it is to have a Canadian passport. And I should treat my passport with a lot more respect. And don't I know what a privilege it is to be a Canadian. Now, I don't know what that is about. Could it be that as a black person, she assumes I'm an immigrant, or that I don't belong here, and that I don't know what the virtues of being Canadian is, right? right. Or is it that she sees a passport that's well worn, and you know, and so that really triggered me, and it was really hurtful. So she opens the passport because she has to process it. Suddenly, she recognizes my name,
0: mm-hmm. Perdita
2: Felician, completely different countenance. Oh my god! You're the Olympian. Perdita. Oh my goodness. We're so proud of you. Now she can touch this passport. Now she can process this passport as if nothing's wrong with it. Right. As if I haven't disrespected or her impressions of me is that I haven't disrespected it now. Right. And so put yourself in my shoes. I don't know what that is. Would she have done that to a white woman or a white man? I don't know. And that is the conflicting thing about being in Our shoes as a person of color is you're constantly having to guess Hmm. and trying to understand, is it my blackness that is doing this or she would have done this to anyone? And here's the truth. Quite frankly, it probably was she saw me as a black person and thinks, okay you're different, you're other. And so when I say my my athleticism or my profile can insulate me from racism, absolutely it does. But only if that person knows who I am. Have I been called the N-word in Canada? Absolutely, yes, I have. And so for me, looking back at the athlete that I was in my 20s, here's the truth. I don't know that I would have spoken out. No, actually, I know that I wouldn't have spoken out as frankly as I have lately. And the reason I wouldn't have Catherine and Jen is because there is a stigma and there is a... There can be a stench around, you know, person of color asking for equality and pointing out racism, right? People don't want to admit it or see it or face it. It's very confronting, right? And so I would have alienated sponsors. I would have alienated, you know, I would have basically jeopardized my livelihood if I'd spoke up. And what's daunting is you do have to, you have to choose between your livelihood and your career and advancing and your integrity, and your blackness. And that is the thing that is very, very difficult. Now the woman that I am now today, and because you know this is the biggest uprising that I've ever seen in my lifetime, that most of us have seen in our lifetime, unless you've lived through the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s, you know, for me, now we are confronting this. Now we are speaking about it for the first time. And to me, this is the generation that is actually going to change things and is going to live in this
1: discomfort until we do something about it. Right. Absolutely. That's pretty powerful. It's a really powerful story.
0: Where do we go from here? What advice do you have for women as they contemplate what they've just heard you say through the course of this conversation and as they think about changes in their own lives? I mean, what advice do you have for other women as we close out?
2: I really do feel like every woman should, whatever space that you take up, don't apologize for it. Heck, take up more space and really, really do find more time for yourself and don't feel guilty about it because we really
1: make the world go round. It's been such a pleasure having you, Pradita, on The Honest Talk. Catherine and I are so thrilled and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Have to do it again sometime.
0: Absolutely. We'd love it. Thank you, Pradita. Thank you. That's a wrap. And to our listeners across Canada and around the world,
1: thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to The Honest Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also listen on our website, thehonesttalk.ca.
0: We've got inspiring, dynamic guests lined up, and we look forward to having you back for The Honest Talk.